Our guest today is a real estate mogul with a truly inspiring journey, Jerome Maldonado. Jerome began his career in direct sales and eventually built an eight-figure empire, demonstrating his tremendous perseverance. Today, he shares his wealth of knowledge as a mentor and a coach, helping others achieve success in the highly competitive real estate investing industry. Get ready for an insightful conversation about sales, entrepreneurship, and of course, multifamily property investing. But before we get started, if you're like the majority of other high net worth individuals, focused on preserving your capital and building your wealth in real estate, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule your discovery call now. This episode is sponsored by Cashflow Portal, real estate syndication software that accelerates capital raising. I'm both an LP and a GP in many multifamily deals. I've used many different software applications for the capital raising process, and I like Cashflow Portal the most. I'm so confident in the software and the Cashflow Portal team that I've become an investor in the company. If you are a syndicator looking for a software platform, then let the Cashflow Portal team know that you heard about them on Darren's podcast and you will automatically receive three months off an annual contract. You can find the company at cashflowportal.com. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Jerome Maldonado. Jerome, appreciate you coming on the show. Darren, thank you for having me. Really appreciate you having me here and thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Um, this is the first time that Jerome and I are, are, are speaking, but I was referred to Jerome because he was a speaker at a conference in Phoenix, uh, the, the VSV conference put on by Stephen Louie and Jenny Gao. And um, I have a, an investor friend, uh, Doug Bozarth, who said that he saw Jerome speak and, and highly recommended that I bring him on the show. So Looking forward to this. Um, you know, with that, typically first question I ask is, is how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Yeah, so we, we own, I, I still own over a million square feet of retail, ironically enough, and, uh, and I have over 1,100 doors that I have under ownership. Um, and it's kind of different from having under management, having ownership. We do, do, we syndicate, but we actually do ground up, build and hold. And we do have, um, two buildings that are vintage um, value add apartment buildings, but the vast majority of our inventory is ground up construction, build and hold. And we have another 600 units under construction right now. Awesome. Well, you know, most of the people that I brought on are syndicators that are kind of more in that value add space. So I'm interested to learn uh, more about the, the ground up opportunity. Um, before we get there, can you share a little bit about you know, what's your background and how'd you get into all this? Um, by accident, Darren, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm an old school entrepreneur by, by heart. Um, I started, this is year 30 for me. I, I started in 1993 
in the uh, multi-level marketing game. And I, we were shut down by the FTC in 1997. I was part of a company that grew too fast, too quick and uh, too much too fast. And the FTC shut us down. And ironically enough, I accidentally landed up in construction. Um, and when I say accidentally, it was because I was just looking for anything that could make money. And I was introduced to a trade of, of decorative concrete where I took some courses down in Las Vegas in 1998. And I still actually own that company today. We still pour a lot of decorative concrete and a lot of just regular gray concrete. But that, that business got me into real estate. I, um, at that time, I had went so financially um, burdened by what happened in 97. I actually just started investing in single family homes in 1998 just like almost anybody who gets into real estate. And I landed up buying a little building in 1999 that I put my office in and I, le I released out the rest of it. And it was a value add for sure. It was a bought it through owner financing. And it was such a little home run. It was a little 8,000 square foot building. I still own it today. That thing has brought us, a, you know, two, $3 million in passive income over the years. And, um, and that, that one building is what kind of triggered a light bulb for me in early years about owning uh, multiple doors. And so I got out of the, after two single family home rentals, I got out of them and um, I got into retail and I was doing ground up retail, value add retail until 2008 hit. And then uh, the brakes were put on us in late 2008, early 2009. And um, that's where the big pivot happened. And uh, we started buying a lot of value add, uh, multifamily, little fourplexes, eightplexes, single family homes, predominantly in Phoenix. And that portfolio that we put together between 2009 and 2012 really posed to be the change of what our business model is today. Um, it introduced me to a whole different wave of real estate in the multifamily space. Uh, we got into the value add space in 2016 and the ground up um, multifamily game um, in 2017. And uh, since then, uh, we've built uh, eight different properties, all of which were over 100 units. And um, and so it, it's been a very, very interesting ride. And I've just kind of let God uh, take us where he's going to take us. But it's been a real hard push into the ground up game. And it's supposed to be extremely lucrative for us. That's awesome. So, I mean, you said it, it happened by accident and that, and that happens a lot to a lot of people, right? I mean, they go to college, they, they get a job where they, they can get a job and then they kind of climb up the ranks or, or they start a business and then they pivot and they, you just, you know, it just some, somehow finds you. Um, but you, you, you're lucky that you found an industry that is a huge wealth building industry versus it is. being in. So, Talk a little bit about why you like real estate versus other kind of paths. I mean, you, you landed there accidentally, but it had huge potential for you. Yeah, we've been, we're vested in, in, in anything and everything that has to be, it has any type of lucrative uh, return to it. You know, everything's a tool. And what I tell people is like, even syndicating, it's a tool to build wealth. It's a, it's a tool to build passive income. Um, there's, you know, there's multiple ways to generate capital from your internal rate of return, your cash on cash return, the, uh, the cost segregation and, and uh, depreciation of the assets. There's just so many different ways to earn in real estate. It's um, I love it. And that's probably the most uh, those are the most attractive things to me in real estate. 
Um, but I even use my stocks as a tool. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm heavily vested in stocks too, which is, is not, is typically the contrary for most real estate people. Um, right. But I've used my stocks even as a tool. So we only do, we look at our stocks just like real estate. They're only, we only buy dividend paying stocks. So no matter what the volatility, volatility in the market is, um, whether it's up or down, we still make returns. Now, today there is a little uh, caveat in that. We um, typically leveraged our stock money to put down payments on properties to be able to show when we go in and we're going to buy. Uh, it's a great tool to be able to, uh, to use as a resource and a, and a tool to show that we have capital uh, to be able to purchase and take down an asset. Um, but it's also been a great tool for the construction side of stuff. When we need money quick, we're able to take a loan against our stocks almost instantaneously within a few days and, um, and uh, leverage it temporarily while we raise capital. And then once capital raise comes in, we take down a really attractive property that we like and we just feed back the capital to our stocks and we still make returns. Um, so when the market is good um, and we're made averaging 11 to 12% annually on our stocks, um, and we, uh, and we're paying back, you know, five or 6%, we're still making a return and it's a great tool. Now, um, what we do every year is I get a call from my stock guy and, um, he goes, Hey, Jerome, do you have any capital gains that you need to offset? Now, typically we cost set, but there are years that there's some, some changes in our trading of real estate. If we have some, and, uh, we may not have this cost set, we may have to capitalize an asset. And in those years, we take our stocks and I sell off the bad ones and we buy um, something different, you know? So if we're, if it's something similar, but different. So if we're invested in oil, we'll take down, we'll sell off one oil company and buy another. We'll sell GM and buy Ford. And, um, and so we're able to almost switch our stocks instantaneously um, where we all no changes in what we're doing but we actually get it um, offset the capital gains with our stock. So we utilize all that stuff as a tool. And I just call it strategic investing, you know, and just wealth building. Yeah. I, you know, my, my grandfather, he told me a long time ago, because he, he, he had an aluminum business. And he said, understand taxes. Yes. And, and, I, and when I was young, I just thought that was boring, right? And like, I didn't want to do it. And once I got in, I only got involved in real estate about five years ago. And, and once I got involved and other people started to open my eyes to it, I mean, that is your biggest expense in, in life. Oh, my God, and yes. So if you can figure out a way to reduce your tax exposure and then take that savings and then invest that in something that's going to give you a return, the compounding of that is, is incredible. Yeah, see, that's what that is. So, hey, talk about, um, you know, where we are today. What, what do you think are, is a good strategy moving forward? I mean, we're in high interest rates. It's hard to make, you know, cash flowing deals, pencil, um, you know, so what, where should people be putting their money? There's a lot of investors that are just on hold. Yeah, they are. They're just, they're just putting their money in 5%. Bond. you know, bank accounts, yeah. you know, uh, money market fund or in a bank account and saying, Hey, I'm going to wait and see what happens. Um, I, I, I still, Darren, am 100% adamant that the ground up game is where it's at as far as returns um, right now. I, I think the So value, talk about that. Ground, yeah. Why ground up versus value add and, and how does that 
you know, how does that play out? Why is it? Yeah. But, and I guess in different types of the times of the cycle, what, why is now a good time for ground up? Yeah. So let me kind of explain it. I'm going to kind of educate here a little bit as well, because I think it's important. Um, our business model is slightly different than most ground up developers. And the reason why is because we've kind of eliminated uh, some of the middlemen. Um, because we were the general contractor for so many years, we learned the ground up construction game. And I still GC uh, some of my projects um, very little anymore. Uh, we do hire general contractors. But the value add game, you're taking an asset that um, was purchased at a 3% cap rate just a couple years ago, 4% cap rate. The, um, the market, as cap rates, as cap rates um, go down, uh, values go way up. As cap rates go back up, values drop. And cap rates, and one thing that most people, if, if, you know, depending on the sophistication level of who's watching right now, um, I know we have a lot of sophisticated um, syndicators on here. Uh, one thing that they realize is that cap rates and interest rates have to run in parallel to each other. And so when that happens and cap rates rise, you take a, an asset that was valued at a 3% cap rate just a few years ago, two years ago, and now is, is in excess of 6%, the value is, is cut in half. So how do you take a depreciated valued asset, same walls, same tenants, same rents, same occupancy, same everything, nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is the cap rate itself because of interest rates. And so when you take an asset like that, and you actually um, go into refinance, you can't refinance a property that's 50% the value of what it was just two years ago. And so when you take that property and you try to add value on top of that and then increase rents, because the cap rate spread has changed so much, no matter how much value you can add, you can't push rents enough to get the value you need to give your investors an internal rate of return. So they'll make, they'll make a cash on cash return um, but most investors that are in the syndication world don't want just a cash on cash return. And most syndicators want a three to five year exit because they don't make any money. They're only holding about 3%, 30% of the equity, giving up 70% of it to investors. And so there's not a spread of profitability for them. Um, so right now it's really hard because we're weighing the stabilization of the market to be able to bear um, its balance between interest rates and cap rates and values all kind of coming in cohesively together so that they can start making a profit again. And I think it's there's at least a couple of years before that actually happens. In the ground up game, what we do is we utilize the tools of real estate to make money. It's not just the syndication game. The syndication game is just one small tool in our entire business model. So we play the land entitlement game. And right now, more than ever, land is what's taking the biggest hit. So because of that, we can buy what was selling for $30,000 a door for multifamily on, on, on land. We're picking that stuff up now again at 2019 numbers at like $10,000 a door. And so we're able to pick up our land for very inexpensive prices um, and we create value in our land entitlement. So I'll give you an example. Um, in Albuquerque, there's a piece of land that a big company called Titan Development, um, I wouldn't call them our, our competitors, they're still bigger than us for sure, but they, there was a piece of land they had tied up and they exited it because it was too small. Um, it's a 5.2 acre lot and the land was selling for $2.8 million. We just tied it up for $1.8 million and it fell out of contract three times and it's because there's some scarcity in the market, obviously, 
And when we went in, the brokers said, Jerome, these are auto franchise owners. They just want it sold. Um, a couple of the um, older owners have pa since passed and they just want it off their books. And um, they came to us um, because they knew who, who I was. And I, I said, I said, well, let me look at the land. And they still, they dropped it at 2.4. We offered it at 1.8 with a delayed close. So we don't pick up a lot of liability on the front end. Um, right now is a great time to negotiate um, long closes. And the way we do that is we show commitment on the front end, larger earnest money deposits, some due diligence time. And then once we feel comfortable with the entitlement process and that the municipality is going to work with us to help us build out multifamily, then what we land up doing is uh, is we go hard on some of our money, but we still don't have no we still have no debt service. So we take it all the entitlement process all the way to the finish line. And then we close on the property right when we're at the finish line before we get stamped, signed and approval for our entitlements. It takes a one point eight million dollar lot and makes it worth about five million dollars. Now, you have to be careful. Wow. It, so the entitlements is going to three, three X, two and a half, three X, the, the value of the land. It'll usually two X it. Um, but we actually okay. have entitlement costs in there. We, we actually have a, a few hundred grand in architecture, engineering, probably about $300,000 worth, right? So when you do, when you get that thing shovel ready, um, in some areas, depending on what your base is, um, yeah, it could, it could increase the land value by three times, um, you know. And right now, what you have to be careful of is that banks are, are very savvy right now. So in prior years where we could go in and collateralize the full value of that land based on an appraised value of $5 million or $6 million, we could collateralize that at, you know, right into the, um, our spread from loan to cost and use that towards our equity. Um, and so we still do that. Now, depending on what type of lender, um, one reason that we like HUD loans, even though HUD right now is it's a long close, it's a little bit more grueling, um, is that they don't care where your basis is. Um, they're going to underwrite the deal and they want to know what the stabilized asset is doing. Um, we're doing a lot of Freddie Mac loans because Freddie Mac right now, um, you, one of two things is going to happen with Freddie Mac loans. Um, you go in, you know what your construction cost is, typically about 8% right now. And, and then you, you can do a stabilized loan in the 7%, 7.1, 7.2%. But we're either going to look like geniuses if, uh, if interest rates go up or we're going to be stuck in a, in a, in a loan that's slightly higher um, for the first few years until we can afford the buyout to refinance that property. So, Darren, this is not a time for people to get greedy. Cash out refis were amazing just a few years, just two years ago. Uh, right now, the game we're playing is just get the, the properties up, built and stabilized, get a cash on cash return sit on them. In five years, Darren, we're going to have a heyday. Um, as you know, the market, there's volatility in every market. And right now the game is just get them up. And once you own an asset like that, uh, what's incredible about it is you own it forever. And when we collateralize our land, Darren, we don't give up a lot of equity where most syndicators give up 70%. We go and we source debt. We're using bond funds. We're using um, private credit funds right now. And we're also using institutional money, but we're doing more government back institutional money to get these out of the ground. And, um, and if you source that stuff strategically, there's still reasonably cheap money available, but you do have to uh, source it and you do have to be out there. And that, that's probably where 90% of our time has been spent in, in just recent months. So a few things there. One, 
Um, I, I like the delayed negotiating the long closes. So how would you define long? So we'll do, it takes about nine months to entitle a property. So typically the way we set them up, because, you know, once you start getting past that six, seven months, sellers be, start becoming leery because they don't want to tie up this property, right? For, for six, nine months, have it off the market. And then all of a sudden you kind of dust your hands off and go, sorry, we're out of here. Right. Right. So 90% of it is communication. Um, we uh, go in and we, we ask for a minimum of 90 days of hard due diligence time, meaning that we'll come in with, you know, on, on a, like a $2 million lot, we'll come in with 50 to 70,000, uh, 50 to $70,000 in uh, escrow money. Um, and then we'll ask them for 90 days of hard due diligence because it's going to take at least that in order to have a pre-development meeting with the city or municipality um, make sure that they're even going to support it. Um, if they know that if you if you feel good that the city itself is going to support um, your request, then you go to phase two, which is neighborhood outreach. Um, what's the neighborhood have to say? Are they going to support it? We typically will hire a, um, a lobbyist or an, um, some type of um, uh, of a nonprofit organization. We use a company called Novell in uh, Phoenix. We use a, our architect locally. Um, the architects are the ones that usually help us with our city or neighborhood outreach. And then if we can get the neighborhood somewhat on board, um, we start pushing towards planning and zoning aggressively. And we're doing a lot of this simultaneously. Um, we're working out environmental um, issues, grading and drainage issues. We're in communication with our civil engineers. And so there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a commitment level here. So we're reducing liability on one side. But Darren, we are picking up liability and risk on another side. We're investing in the potential of this project, right? So we're explaining that to the sellers that, hey, look, we're coming in, but we also have as much, if not more, at risk than you do. Uh, we're paying for the architectures. We're paying for the civil engineers. We're paying for some of this stuff. And, um, and that's where our base capital comes in that we typically forefront out of our own pockets before we even get investors committed to a deal. Um, this way, once we know we're coming in with investors, we know we have a deal. You know, we know we have uh, a deal that's palatable. We've been working it for several months. Then it um, after 90 days, sometimes if we haven't had the municipal cooperation to get the meetings and alignment that we need, we'll ask them for a 30 day extension. And so typically we won't go more than 120 days, but uh, 120 days, 90 to 120 days, we go non-refundable on our money. Now it's just a process. Um, now we're just, all we're doing is buying time and offsetting um, debt service, which reduces our liability and risk. And so now we're just going through the municipal process of city council, planning and zoning, waiting for engineers and architects to do their, uh, their due diligence and execute for us. And, um, and so now it's just a process of time. And so once we get there, we feel pretty damn good about our project. We'll put money non-refundable on it. And now we're just buying time to get to the finish line is all we're doing. And then we make all of our offers contingent on the zoning designation that we need and a certain quantity of approved density that we need. So like the one that the property that I'm talking about um, here in Albuquerque was uh, we want a minimum of 165 doors because that's where the project pencils best. And we're pushing for a density of 185. We believe we'll get it. And we ground up construction. As you increase the density, the density makes the project safer. 
because you have more upside. Um, as, as the doors quantity increases, the profitability increases on the construction, on the liability, and you can utilize those extra 20 doors that we're pushing for to um, help stabilize and make the project even safer. Because you can even use that extra income just to serve as debt, for sake of example, just to make sure. that project stabilize at the, at the back end. So the land cost, so I, I like that you, you, that whole process. Now in this example, like $1.8 million um, purchase and say it's nine months or 12 months later after, after getting into it, are you funding that with your own money? Have LPs in the deal or are you financing that somehow? Yeah, we typically um, the raise capital by, by if, let's say it takes, for example, 12 months, let's say it takes a full year to do a month, uh, typically in month number nine. Um, and we, if we know that things are pretty well on their way, we're just waiting for logistical stuff for the official um, city council meetings and stamp of approval. Um, we, uh, we'll go ahead and start raising capital. So we'll do an off, we'll, we'll do a pitch deck. Um, we'll, we'll do our full offering deck. Um, we'll, we'll build it out. By that time, we've already done all our performas. We've already know what's happening um, demographically in the areas. Um, so that we'll put a, a, an offering deck together and we'll raise the capital. And we'll typically at that time even exit out our initial investment in that. And that's where we refund ourselves. All, all so, the fees and everything that you've funded. Yep. Right. And so typically we'll go in and um, we'll raise capital on the land. Now, once we Which do- that is similar on, on a value add deal is, yeah. you know, the, the sponsor is fronting all the upfront costs, the, the harder earnest money, the you know, attorney's fees and yes. uh, appraisal fees, et cetera. And that gets refunded at closing. That's it. So that's, you're doing the same thing. Same exact thing. So we'll, so we'll go in, we'll raise the capital, we will reimburse ourselves. And then we, uh, once we have full entitlement approval, we start working toward permits. So permits, once we typically do that, are, are typically anywhere between four and six months out, depending on plan review process. So we're in this, um, where we actually take ownership of the land. So now we're hovering. That's where we start securing our, our finished costs for our, um, for our construction loan. Um, we're doing a lot of due diligence. We're shopping bids and we're getting our general contractors dialed in. Now, typically, once we do that, um, when loans were, when we were able to get 80% loan to cost, it was great because we would typically only have to fund our interest reserve. Um, the land itself would typically take about 20% of the project. And if we had to raise any capital at all, it was a very minimal amount. And, um, and so the, we would retain 100% equity because we're only raising um, LPs and typically we're raised, we were raising debt. Um, so when we got our stable, our uh, construction loan, we would typically exit out all our investors and sometimes we'd only have that money for a few months. Sometimes we'd have it for a year. Just depends on how long it took us to get um, to turn dirt. And once we closed on our construction loan, we would exit out all of our investors on the land and we'd have zero investors. And now we'd build with institutional money and the, uh, the bank would actually pay off. So is that, is that because the land, once the land was fully entitled, that the valuation that the bank looked at the land as being valued higher, so you were able to take out all the, the initial yeah, investors? 100%. That's exactly it. That's, that's huge. Right it's there. huge. It's huge. So when I say that, when you say like how many doors you have under management, that's why when I started yeah. off, I said, what we do slightly different. We have over 1,100 doors under ownership. Like I own 100% right. equity in 1,100 doors. 
Yeah, that's crazy. Because I've heard other people on the ground up, they've kind of gone through phases of it. So, you know, you've got investors that would come in to buy the land um, and then, but they're not, they're not, and then it's not entitled yet. And then they're getting to the entitlement process and then they're having a second set of investors come in to do ground up and then a third set of investors to, you know, have it once it's stabilized to, to operate it. Um, but you're taking out the initial investors after you get the full entitlements and you, you get the construction loan. And so then everything is with you and your team. Yeah, 100%. So me and like, uh, so I'm doing a lot of these 100% independently. So we do the asset management, the project management, the ground up construction and everything on one side. And then I partner with great companies and great people like Louis, um, like Stephen Louie and, uh, and, Kyle Mitchell, these guys with VSV, we own several properties together that we've done exactly as I just explained. Um, and I, I believe it's the stronger part of their portfolio, in all honesty, um, which these guys are extremely sharp. You know, I, I, I'm blessed to have good partners in that regards, but it's helped us in scale. Um, so we still take down about one third of our developments, 100% independently, and then, a, and then about two thirds of them with strategic partners where we do offload the asset management side of um, and um, the asset management side of the uh, development to a strategic partner, which helps us with bandwidth um, and less employees, more bandwidth. We'll let, yeah. I let Steve Louie and Kyle and these guys afford the staff and the headache with that. And I take advantage right. of that on my end and they let me do the same on the development end. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, something you said earlier, um, it's actually the first person I've heard say it. So I'd like to get, um, your take more on it is you said land prices have come down. So my understanding was that land prices haven't come down. It, you know, interest rates have gone up, but land prices haven't, haven't come down. And that's why it's so hard to make deals pencil. Um, but you're seeing that land prices have come down. Yeah. And it might be my deal flow. Um, Darren, we've been blessed. Um, our social presence gives us a little bit of an advantage over the average person. Um, Stuff that's on the market that's um, coming to the market is still high. We uh, most of our stuff comes to us us off market um, through relationships. Um, that's where networking is so important, and being at investors meetups, being around these big commercial brokers, having them know who you are and respect who you are, um, creating a name that um, that uh, is respected in this industry, as you know, is everything because it's a it's really a small industry. Um, so if you become have a reputation for Getting tied up in deals that don't close, um, that's going to weigh heavily against you. If you uh, get a reputation for getting yourself in deals that strategically and um, and you're respected for, it doesn't matter if you if your deal if you underwrite hard, but if you're um, but once you get a deal, as long as you close and you get to the finish line, that's what most brokers are looking for. And so we are a pain in the ass with our underwriting process. Um, we underwrite hard. We are. You know, we only we were very specific on what we want, need and are looking for. And we won't falter otherwise. Um, it might take us a year sometimes to find the right deal. But once we find it, we will move and execute on it strategically and quickly. Um, and when we do that, we will close, you know, and brokers know that about us. So land prices have come down. And I'll give you three examples just in the last couple of weeks. And it's, it's really only been over the last couple of months because people, it, I, I talk about it like um, substance abuse. 
you know, first you have somebody who's, who's a user, right? And they're in denial and that's our market, right? So you get, so the market changes and all the investors and wholesalers and everybody, they're in denial. They, they don't believe it's changed. They're not affected by it. And they still find that one or two loose purchasers and they still get a little bit of deal, deal flow because there's also people that are in denial that are buying, you know, they want more deal flow. And, um, and so we just tell them, okay, cool. You guys sell it and no problem. That's our all in. And, you know, and, uh, they give us a little fear of loss and we say, Serenara baby, have a good day. And, um, a lot of times those deals come full circle. And if they don't, they sell no big deal. There's more land out there for sale. And, um, and then they go through acceptance. They're in denial. Then they go through acceptance, but this acceptance phase is where it's hard to negotiate because they know that they're stuck, but they're stuck in a way that they can't sell. And if they sell, they're going to lose. Right. And then they go from this acceptance phase and, uh, and they go into rehabilitation, right. Where it's like, okay, I can't take no more abuse. It's time to sell. And it's kind of where these auto dealers were at with this land for 1.8 million. They've went through three sales, um, over the last two years, they've been excited to sell off this land and they haven't. And so three times it's fell through. And so we're the last man standing and um, the deal comes full circle. So we, we get a million dollar price reduction um, on, on the land because of it. We were in North Phoenix the other day and um, there was a small property. And I'll talk about this for people that want to do smaller deals, because I'll tell you, Darren, right now, that's where it's at is small ground up game. Um, and, and I haven't even let anybody in on this, but this is where we're kind of migrating. Um, we wouldn't do anything under a hundred units. And I underwrote a deal where it was in a perfect area, upper, upper median area in Phoenix, um, where homes were over the $1 million threshold, right on a golf course. And this little 2.6 acre lot comes up. I didn't, didn't think I was interested in it, but on the way passing through one of my other developments, I happened to stop and I stopped and I said, holy shit, this is a really great lot. There was a little caveat because there's a, a drainage canal behind it and it was right on the back of North Mountain. And but there's a golf course and a bunch of beautiful homes around it. And there was another small 37 unit development that was on the side of it. And I happened to just call and the rents with rubs and everything were in excess of three thousand dollars a month. So I sat down, I penciled that thing and I said, holy shit, I'm going to I can make this thing has a four hundred thousand dollar NOI um, just shy of I can make. After I, my mortgage payments, $200,000 a month in passive income, I can build this out with no investors. I'll just do it myself. And it was a, the land was a 1.2, had sold three years ago for $1.2 million. And they were trying to offload it because there was a partnership dispute. They were trying to do an, it was fully entitled for office, a little office building, like a dentist office or something. And um, they went through full entitlements. These guys were in a legal dispute and $300,000 was what the wholesalers were trying to, to get on the land. I missed it. I went in to go speak at an event. And in three hours, I told him, write it up. And when I'm out, I said, I'll sign, I'll sell, I'll sign the purchase agreement. I got out, went to the airport and on my way to the airport, it had already gotten tied up by somebody else. But, um, but $300,000 for that land. And that thing will cash flow. That thing will cash flow forever. And it's, it's a little six and a half million dollar build. Just there's prop, there's properties like that right now. And that's where it's at. And here's, what's cool is that, like institutional money, once you get over $20 million, small community banks, um, credit unions, they won't touch it because they anything over $20 million, they have to get banked by a large institution. 
So anything over $20 million, which is the world that we live in, and our developments typically range between 30 and $50 million um, builds on the build cost. And because we're in that world, once we get over that $20 million lending, small community banks are outside of our reach because it's just too much for them. So they have to go get back by a larger institution. So we're back in the same boat that we're in. So what's attractive now about these small assets is if I can keep my builds under $20 million, I can go down to Susie down in my local credit union. I can go down to Richard down in my local community bank. And these guys do what's called, um, they do a round table underwriting right in their office. They don't go to a corporate underwriter that where you're a piece of paper, where you just, you're a number, you're a piece of paper. They don't know your project. These guys will only invest in projects in their own community, in their own cities. And what's cool about that is that your face and your resume truly brings value to the table. So if they like you, they know you and they trust you and it's under $20 million, they can do a round table underwriting there and make logical human sense out of a deal. And if it makes sense, you can get lending on it still and you can get it at a fair rate. Um, so that, that's interesting to hear because, you know, when you, when you read the press, all you hear is that banks specifically are, you know, staying away from commercial real estate. Yeah, that's You're banks. saying that the smaller commu community banks are still open to yep. building those relationships. Yeah, because their money comes in from depositors. They're, they're vested in the community. They're not getting money on the Federal Reserve rate. They're coming in from depositors. And but most this saved me in 2008, Darren. I'll give people gold right here. This saved my ass in 2008. I was building retail. Oh, my God. I, I almost got killed in the retail space. Um, a, a local credit union saved me. Um, all my bills back then were right around that 6 to $10 million range. And I was dealing with Bank of Oklahoma. Pain in the ass. Never will deal with those guys ever again. Um, we had, uh, and we were dealing with us bank and, and also, uh, we were dealing with compass bank. Compass was actually really good, which is now PNG bank. Those guys left me alone. They were Canadian owned. Um, at the time, I don't know if PNG is Canadian owned or not, but compass bank just left me alone. They didn't bother me. We just, we just let that stuff hover. Everything that we had through compass bank at that time, we just let it hover. And, um, and we got through it. No problem. Um, didn't make us a ton of money, uh, nothing to brag about, but we got through it. Um, we either sold those assets or refinanced them later. But Bank of Oklahoma, man, they stressed me out to beyond belief. And um, um, I mean, we were uh, they were calling they were trying to call notes on us that we were never delinquent on, never late, nothing. And um, and one thing I learned from and this is what's good about having friends in the industry is they said, Jerome, why don't you get a credit union? I was at seven percent interest rates in 2009, 10, because this is where it really came down the pipeline. It wasn't 2008 where they started doing this. It took two years. 2010. Right. They're, they're doing forced appraisals on you every single year. They're doing forced underwriting on you, cost you about $20,000 a year just to service the loan, just, just for them to say, okay, you qualify for another year of lending from us. And they'd charge you like 20,000 bucks per note that you had with them. And, uh, and then they would just, and they would just beat you up and they were on your back, property tax, everything. Like if you were a day late, they were on the phone with you. Um, and it was very, it was extremely stressful. So we landed up going to a local credit union. What people don't realize with credit unions is they're non-for-profit. They're owned by their members. So they're not banks and they're not a non-profit. They're non-for-profit. So credit unions, the members own the credit union. And so we were able to go and get 4% commercial loans in 2010 and take these 7% loans 
um, out of Bank of Oklahoma, put them with credit unions. They saved me. I learned something there that, um, you know, so when this all started happening, I, I would tell everybody, I said, I don't know how, I don't know where, but there will be a way and we'll figure it out. And I even told Kyle and these guys, they said, well, should we sell off some of the land? And I said, no. I said, give me time. I said, let me, let me, give me some time. I, let me, let me network and let me figure this out. There's money available. The ultra wealthy, they make more money in times like this than any other time. That's where like um, private equity comes into play um, or private debt um, and, and also um, bond funds come into play because the ultra wealthy, they'll fund these and they'll put in, they'll get 5%, 6% on their money and um, leverage it at 7, 8%. So you can even get um, lower interest rates. Now they are the good private equity firms are harder to get lending from than banks on their underwriting process, but they have money. So if you are qualified and you're vetted and you have experience, there's still money available. You have to be careful though in this crazy market because just like any market, when there's opportunity, everybody and their grandparents come into the market, right? Um, so now everybody's a private equity lender. Everybody's do, doing private debt right now. And you have to be careful because what most people don't realize is that they'll promise you the pie in the sky. And when you're doing ground up construction, what, what the biggest benefit is, is that the loan graduates as the project graduates. So you might have an high interest rate. So what we're doing now is we'd rather leverage, we'd rather have better leverage on our projects and do and have them come to the table with more debt than, and, and we'll take on the high interest rates provided that we can graduate it because typically it's at the tail end of the project that we have our most, our biggest expense. So at the tail end of the project comes down to management. Like how do we get these finished quicker? How do we get them stabilized quicker? And so now efficiency is everything. But what happens with some of these, uh, with, with some of these private equity firms is that these private equity guys that are raising debt, um, like syndications, they go in and raise it all. And they say, you say, okay, I need $10 million. And then they give you $10 million. And that day your liability starts for all $10 million. Where when yeah. you do a construction loan, it graduates to that. And so your liability spread diminishes and it only is at the top back end when you almost have a finished asset that's ready to stabilize. And if you build it right, you build it out where you start stabilization on some of the units before you even get to the finish line. So you already have security and safety because you're stabilizing right. those. Then you have some rental income. The banks love that. So even, they're even starting to release our interest reserve by this time. And then it graduates to a higher interest payment, but you're offsetting some of that with some of the stabilized um, assets that you finished in phase one. Now you work in phase two, phase three, where with a uh, private equity, if you're not careful, there's two things that can happen. They either raise it for you, it puts in the bank, your liability starts that day and the same quantity of money is going to get taken, but you start having that debt service immediately. Or... They, they do it strategically where they raise the capital as you need it. The only problem with that is we don't know what's happening in the future. So if all of a sudden that person cannot raise the capital for you and that private, that startup private equity firm can't raise that capital, they get you a quarter of the way through and they say, we can't finish raising the capital. Now your project is bottlenecked until that capital, until their ability to raise that capital comes into fruition. But now there's no bank in town that wants to lend you money because of lien laws. So there's a, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. I mean, which is, which is important is like the, 
the strength of the actual lender or the debt fund or the whoever, because if, if they don't give you it all right up front, you could end up getting stuck. Yes. Or they don't have the money. That's, that's our you, biggest concern. You know, where most syndicators right now are just like, oh, I, just, I just need to find a lender who's going to give me what I, what I need to you know, get to the other side. Yes. And uh, so, so that, that's definitely a concern. So that's, that's huge. I, I love some of the things you brought up. I mean, one, um, land prices coming down. I mean, that, that is news to me. Um, so that's interesting to hear. Two, you know, having already gone through a, a very difficult cycle in the 2008-2012 timeframe that you were able to find you know, unique lenders that made it a win-win for them and for you. And um, so that's a message out to, you know, there's a lot of people that are syndicators that are looking to try to find solutions. And look, it's, it may not be with the, the lenders that were throwing out loans over the last three, four, five years. It may be new lenders that you need to go build relationships with um, and smaller ones. Yep. Um, and then ground up versus, and, and smaller, you know, looking at the smaller game. Um, that's, a, that's another big thing that you brought up. I think that, um, you know, everybody was kind of focused on bigger is better. You know, everybody wanted the 100 plus unit yep. deal. And now there may be some unique opportunities in that, in that smaller game. Yeah. Because even no one wanted to compete against the mom and pop buyers. That was the thing, right? Like that's why no one touched them. Mom and pop buyers aren't buying. So now it's time, it's time to go sweep some of that stuff up. Um, the smaller game is, is going to be the safer game for a little while. Um, the bandwidth for landing is going to be there. Um, but it's, if you can tell Darren, my time has been spent being very strategic and educating myself in so many vast, you know, um, facets of lending and everything. And, um, we're, we're in it, we're in the thick of it right now. So the reason we're able to migrate isn't because it's times are easy. They're tough for sure. We have just become very ed more educated in diversified areas of lending, which I knew were out there. And, um, this is the time right now where the savvy and those who spend the time educating themselves will benefit and mass fortunes. And unfortunately, the lazy won't. Um, you know, I, you know, as much as I hate saying it, there's a lot of lazy people that find a path and that's the only path they know. And um, they execute it and they think that they try to force their path even in hard times. And you have to be able to acclimate and adapt. Um, and the, uh, the, the more, more well fit are the ones that survive. And if this right now is the survival of the fittest. And so you got to become the fittest. You have to become better, a better version of whatever you were doing. You have to become the best of it right now in the industry. And if you do, you will profit. And if you don't, you will suffer. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're a huge mindset guy. And what you said earlier was, I mean, you've been doing this for in different facets for 30 years. There's a lot of people that have been, I've only been in it for five years. There's a lot of people that have only been in it you know, five, six, seven, eight years. And, um, but even with being in it for 30 years, you said, give me some time to think about this. Let me, let me figure out a way. It wasn't like you knew, it, you know, this, the issues today are different than they were, you know, five, 10 years ago, but you're like, let me, give me some time. Let me figure out, there's gotta be a way. Yeah. Right. And, 
Um, so you're, you're pivoting to that. So, hey, if people want to get to know you better, get to know, um, you know, where can, can we, um, you know, point them to? Yeah, my uh, name is right here in the show notes. If you just Google that name, I'm everywhere. Uh, from Instagram to Facebook to LinkedIn to, you know, you, you name it, YouTube. And we have a lot of educational content out there that um, teaches exactly what I went over today. As I learn it, I teach it. Um, I become better at what I do by actually teaching it. Believe it or not, I just, it helps me so much by being an educator. I learn because I don't want to look like a like an idiot. So I just I learn <laughs> and learn and learn to make sure that what I'm saying it, it uh, that I'm teaching you guys stuff that's uh, that's palatable and real. And so um, so we have a lot of stuff. You can find us just about anywhere. That's that's awesome. So I'm gonna spell his uh, his name for first and last name because his his website is. Um, Jerome Maldonado, J-E-R-O-M-E-M-A-L-D-O-N-A-D-O.com. So he's got information there. And, and as he mentioned, um, he's on all the social media channels. So with that, um, Jerome, really appreciate you coming on, sharing your wisdom. Uh, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.